Amen. Well, good being with you guys again. I was here, I think it was last year, and uh, any excuse to get out to the Hamptons, I will take. So, um, privilege to be here. Uh, before I read the, the text, I wanted to give you a little context. Um, at Redeemer Downtown, all the Redeemers actually, we've been going through Exodus. And uh, just to give you a quick note, like just cliff notes on Exodus, the first few chapters, uh, 14 chapters, are about deliverance. You know, Moses is... Uh, raised up, delivers Israel from the yoke of slavery in Egypt. Uh, they cross the Red Sea. Uh, there's several chapters that kind of cover this, this wandering in the desert. There's about six chapters that have to do with the law. But the bulk of the end part of Exodus, 16 chapters, have to do with worship. Uh, this tabernacle, this vision that God gives Moses for the tabernacle, this place where God's presence will come down and dwell with his people, the system uh, the housing where God's going to be worshipped in. And so the text we're going to read is after God's laid out this vision, uh, he raises up some laborers to execute the vision, uh, these artisans that are able to kind of put this vision into real uh, flesh and bone or, or a real gold, metal, wood, and fabric. So that's where we're at. So join me in this reading, please. This is Exodus 35, verses 30 through 35, and then chapter 36, 1 through 7. Then Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of artistic crafts. And he has given both him... And Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. He has filled them with skill to do all kinds of work as engravers, designers, embroiders in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen, and weavers of all of them, skilled workers and designers. So Bezalel, Aholiab, and every skilled person to whom the Lord has given skill and ability to know how to carry out all the work of the constructing of the sanctuary are to do the work just as the Lord commanded. Then Moses summoned Bezalel and Holiab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and, to who was, and who was willing to come and do the work. They received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring freewill offerings morning after morning. So all the skilled workers who were doing all the work of the sanctuary left what they were doing and said to Moses... The people are bringing more than enough for doing the work of the, that the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order, and they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more, because what they already had was more than enough to do all the work. The word of the Lord. So in New York, there's a lot of, in city, there's a lot of transition that takes place. And as I was kind of having conversations with friends, um, a lot of these came up. My own son uh, graduated high school, so he's entering a transition into college life. I have a friend who's been working the same job uh, for about 16 years, and he's just finally hit this place where he feels it's just not life-giving anymore. He can't do anything with the work culture, and he feels like he's just punching a paycheck, and he's kind of miserable, and so he's really contemplating a new transition. He's going to go in a different direction, and it's a bit scary, because in a few more years, he would have probably been made a partner, uh, but he feels like God calling him to do something really hard. 
So in the text, I was just thinking about these artisans being called to do something uh, challenging, but something they were passionate about. So what do you do in these seasons of transition? Uh, I have another friend who is in another difficult work situation in that he has gotten a, a promotion in London, but his fiance hates London and doesn't want to go. So what does he do when work says do this and his significant other says, I don't want to do that? I have another friend who's crushing it financially. He's, he's built this business that is super successful, yet right now he feels more spiritually dead than he's ever felt in his life because of all the work demands uh, and his inability to kind of find out that balance. And then I have another dear friend who's uh, set out in this new job that she's excited about, but in eight months uh, there were some mishandlings of funds, and so she's going to be terminated next month. So what do you do in these transition points in life where your calling hits exciting places, hits boring places, hits hard places? What do you do in these different seasons that God will inevitably have you in? And I think our text speaks a lot to that point. Because there will be seasons that are great. Most of you know this. There will be seasons that are not so great, but God is constant. And so in the text, I think the first thing that you see that I think is a huge um, bit of encouragement is it says, see, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri. I think regardless of what phase in life you find yourself, whether it's a high or whether that's a low, fixed things are very encouraging. There's two fixed things that I know of in Scripture. One is that that's God. He's unchanging, the Scriptures say, so you can cling to Him. But the second thing is your position before God if you're one of His children. If you are chosen, if God has opened your eyes to the truth and you have responded to that, that is unchanging. God is unchanging and your position before God is unchanging. I have a teen and a tween, and I love them, but they can be nightmares sometimes. But it doesn't matter. Regardless of how annoying they can be, their position before me will never change. They will always be my children. There's something special there. And I think no matter what phase you find yourself in today, never forget that if you're a Christian, you are chosen by God. The Bible says you are a royal priesthood a chosen people that God has brought out of darkness and into his light. And I think it's so easy to forget that. But if you meditate on that, wow, God has rescued me. And I look at my, God called me when I was 19, arrogant, so full of myself. And I look at all the people God put in my life specifically to get me to a place where I would respond to him, blown away at how good God is blown away at how gracious he is. So never forget, regardless of where you're at, good or bad, that you are chosen. You're a child of the king. And these idols in life, power, success, comfort, recognition, these things that draw us away, if you're a child of the king, guess what? One day, all of those things are yours, if you really believe that. God is going to set up a kingdom we're in this already not, not yet phase, but when he comes back to restore everything, all those things you long for, all those things that distract you, that power, that success, that comfort, that recognition, all those things are found in being a child of the king. So if you don't have them now, you're going to get them forever one day. All these things are yours because you're chosen. So the first thing I see that encourages me 
in any season is that this man was chosen. Bezalel was chosen. And it doesn't stop there. He also was filled with the Spirit of God. I think that's important also. It's not just that you're chosen, but it's that you're regenerated, you're sealed, and you're empowered. Now, Mark and I were joking about this. I come from a Pentecostal background. Now, the Pente- our Pentecostal brothers, they think they've cornered the market on the Holy Spirit. And then us, the Reformed, yeah, we're like the frozen chosen, you know, like depending on the church you go to, God forbid their motion sensors with light. The lights will go out during a Presbyterian worship service because there's zero movement, you know, <laughs> maybe. And it's so funny at Redeemer because you'll, you'll get a spectrum, but I'll know when a, a Pentecostal snuck in because I'm like, who's that guy, you know, kind of in the... You know, who, who let him in? But what's funny is if you're in a reform camp, you're all about the Holy Spirit. Because there's different words that, 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 that scriptures use to describe the Holy Spirit. But one common one in, in John 16 is the parakletos, the paraclete, the helper Jesus talked about. He guides you to truth. He convicts you of sin. So we believe that you didn't somehow figure out God one day, that you were just miserable. And you're like, no. What about God? No, the Bible says that in your heart, you would never choose God. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we believe the Holy Spirit somehow pulls us into his truth. I led this questioning Christianity course. Tim Keller does this big series, but then we had these home groups in New York. And it had eight people, and it's it's set up just for seekers and for skeptics. And what I found so interesting was the relentless pursuit of God in the lives of these people who had come there. Mind-blowing. One woman was in the Peace Corps, and she's like, I just, I never grew up in church, but I just wanted to start praying, and I couldn't figure out why, and I didn't even know how to do it, and lo and behold, there's this guy who's from this church called Redeemer who's also in the Peace Corps, He's like, I'm a Christian. Do you want to learn how we pray? She's like, no, I don't want to learn anything about Christianity. Not at all. But she's then, then over time, he was just such a lovely guy that I finally said, you know, I would like to learn about prayer. And he told me where this Redeemer downtown church was. And it turned out, I grew up right by this. I lived a block away. So I went and I became a Christian last week. Another guy, he was like Mr. Tinder, dating, dating, hooking up, hooking up, miserable in all of his exploits finally meets a Christian girl, and she's like, yeah, she's like, I'm a Christian, but we can only go so far in a relationship. I don't want you to, like, become a Christian just for my sake. If this is going to go anywhere, you've got to enroll in this question in Christianity course. He's like, so I'm here, and I've got these questions. And as I had a couple months with this guy, he's like, yeah, I didn't tell you. My mom actually became a born-again Christian last year, and my sister became a born-again Christian three years ago, and I feel like God is just haunting me, and I can't escape him. And it was just so funny. I'm like, wow, God was pursuing the Holy Spirit, drawing these people into truth. So if you're a Christian, how wonderful it is that God draws you into a relationship with him, draws you to the truth, convicts you of your sin, and then he regenerates you and he seals you. In, um, I'll give you one of the verses, but in Ephesians, we have this wonderful promise. It says, in him, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession of the praise of his glory. 
drawn to truth, convicted of sin, regenerated, sealed. And it doesn't stop there. Empowered. As her sister just read about Pentecost. Power. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. The gifts of the Spirit. All these things are yours as a believer. The resource. That's why Jesus said, it is better. And who wouldn't want to hang out with Jesus in the flesh? But he said, it is better that I go away. Because my Holy Spirit, he's going to come and live inside you and empower you and help you to worship you. To worship me, not just draw you to me but actually help you to live this Christian life, that is yours, people. Every day that is yours. I wake up to God. I'm so thankful for your presence in my life. Fill me with your spirit today. Whatever gift you have for me, may it come out. Give me opportunities to use it. Fill me with your joy. Fill me with your peace. Fill me with your power. Give me more of this today, Lord. Help me to remember what I have in you. Remember that, church, regardless of what the season is, high or low, you are sealed and you are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Next, 36, 1 through 2. I love this in the text. I think so often God's will, whether he's transitioning you or moving you on or whatever, it's, it's often at this interesting intersection of calling and opportunity. These men were empowered by God. They were artisans. They were artists. They wanted, it was just in them to be creative. You can't, well, you can fake that, but good artists, you can't fake good art. It's just there and it comes out. You can, you can fine tune it, train it, perfect it, but there's got to be some raw talent there. These men had this talent from God, this willingness to do it. It says in the text, then Moses presented the opportunity to them, and it says they were filled with the Spirit of God to execute all these types of, working, of, of works. And then 36.2 says, and all the men the Lord had given ability and who were willing to come and do the work. When I was talking to my friend who's considering leaving his, his job, I'm like, well, has God put that in your heart? So he's like, I can't escape this desire. It's overwhelming. And as I recall, just looking at this whole story of how God led the Israelites in the desert, you know, there's like 1.6 million people. That's a lot of people. It's not like Moses and his glowing face was what all these people were seeing, and that's how they knew to move in the desert. God moved the people in two primary ways. One, you're in the desert, so it's really hot. So it's kind of common sense. God was this gigantic, he manifested himself in this gigantic pillar, this cloud, which provided shade. Shade is really wonderful when it's hot in the desert. So when that cloud moved, guess what? All the Jewish people moved with it. God was leading them by what they liked. And then, science geek, I have a science background, you know, in the desert there's no cloud coverage. So what, there's no, the heat doesn't reflect back, so it radiates out of the desert. So the de desert gets really, really cold. Not to mention that problem with all these creepy nocturnal animals that come out. So if you're isolated in the desert, heat would be wonderful, light would be wonderful. So when that pillar of fire moved at night, guess what? You would move with it. God often leads you by what you like, by what you're passionate about. I'm not saying there'll be seasons in life that are mundane and boring and terrible, but all I'm saying is God puts things in your heart that are inescapable sometimes. 
So is God doing that to you? He put this desire to do art in these men's lives, these people's lives. And as soon as the opportunity opened, they went with it. So I think when God opens the door and burdens you almost with this desire to walk through it, that's a beautiful place to be in. So is God calling you to something new? And is he opening the door? It's quite practical. I've talked to people, and it makes me like, she's like, I talked to this girl, she's like, I'm, I'm almost positive that God's telling me that Ken is supposed to be my husband. And I'm like, well, I know Ken, and he doesn't like you. So I don't think <laughs> that's God's will. And I'm not trying to be mean, but that's the fact. And so she may have been willing, but there was no open door because I knew my friend had zero interest. Not to be mean, but that's just, it's common sense. So here I think, is God opening a door and is he giving you a desire to move through that door? Often, that's a way you can discern the will of God. So these people were chosen. They were filled with the Spirit, reliant on the Spirit. And they were recognizing the willingness they had to execute the will of God. Also, the fourth thing, so recognize your willingness would be the third thing. The fourth thing is recognize your gifting. In that similar way, what has God given you a gift to do that other people recognize? Because often a calling, it's not just that you feel that you can do it, but there should be a group around you that recognize that as well. When I, I was pre, my mom is Asian. My mom's from Thailand. And this is a generalization, but I find it to be true. Many Asian moms want their sons to be doctors. Maybe white moms do too, but I'm just speaking from my personal context. Uh, my sister's a doctor, and I'm like, yeah, I guess I'll, that's what I should be too. However, I got rejected by 50 medical, no, 40 medical schools, <laughs> even shady ones in Guam that don't look at your MCAT score. And so it was very clear that it wasn't God's will that I was supposed to become a doctor. And I didn't know what to do, cause, but God had gotten a hold of me my sophomore year in college, and I loved teaching them. I lo anything I learned in, in, in church, I looked for ways to share it. Anything I read, I regurgitated, I wanted to learn to share it. Anybody in my dorm who would listen to me talk about Jesus, they would hear me talk about Jesus. Any small group Bible study, I was so down. And so the guy discipling me, he's like, I kind of noticed you are most content and most excited when you were telling people about Jesus. And I'm like, well, that's interesting, but I'm super bummed because I got rejected by 40 medical schools. He's like, no, 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 you're not hearing me. Maybe God's calling you into ministry. And I dismissed that, and a lot of other things happened, you know, but even when I lived in Europe doing other things in the fashion world, this call to ministry was inescapable until finally God opened the door and I was able to walk through it and even restart it when I moved to to New York seven years ago, but has God put something in your life that, that is inescapable, that's a gifting? Perhaps God's calling you to move through that as well. So just to be clear, remember you're chosen as one, rely on the Holy Spirit as two. Point three, recognize your willingness to go like these men in 36 verses one and two. Recognize your gifting, verses 35, 31, 32, and 35. Over and over again, it points out these men were gifted. They were equipped to do the job. What has God most equipped you to do? And is he calling you to something different? It happens all the time. I'm seeing it more and more often, actually, in New York, where I'm meeting people who've been doing some, one thing for many years, and they're just like, you know, 
this isn't how I want to end up. I don't want to, I'm just, I'm stopping. I did a photo shoot with a photographer who was in finance for 15 years. And he's like, I just decided I really, I hate finance and I like photography. So I left it and I'm a photographer now and I'm totally broke, but I'm super happy. And I'm like, awesome. That's great. <laughs> so he did the pivot. Fifth thing, recognize your people. In chapter 35, verse 34, it explains this plurality happening. These two men were spirit-filled, Oholiab and, um, I'm not going to mingle his name, I'll say it, Uh, yes, Bezalel. They could have said, you know what, we've got the spirit, we're going to do this ourselves. We're going to be the top dog artisans for the tabernacle, and that's it. It's just us, it's our show. They didn't do that. They taught other people. There was a multitude of laborers. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10 that two are better than one because they have a good return for their works. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. If you're in a season that is challenging right now, do not keep that to yourself. The whole idea of the church as a community is so that we can strengthen one another, sharpen one another, lift up one another, but you can't do that unless you're honest about your situation. If God's got you in a challenging circumstance, let your community here at this church know. Give them an opportunity to, to, to pray, to brainstorm, to encourage. Let them know. The church is this beautiful entity, and you don't see many like that. I mean, Elks Club-ish, but, but the, the church <laughs> is this beautiful family of people from different backgrounds, different skill sets, different ages, all together under Christ with one common goal. We run with each other, the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And our bro- if we have brothers and sisters in challenging seasons, we help them up and we keep running the race with them utilize that resource. That resource is a gift. So if God has you in a challenging season or a mysterious season where you can't figure it out, seek out wise counsel from other people who are spirit-filled. Last two points here. So recognize your people would be point five. And then I think six, recognize your shortcomings. Is God using your work situation or maybe the challenges of it to reveal sin in your life? Because often work can be a blessing and a curse. I even think about in the garden. It was work that opened Adam's eyes, in a sense, to a beautiful thing. As he was naming the animals, naming the creatures, this is hypothetical, but it could have been Mr. Gorilla, Mrs. Gorilla, Mr. Lizard, Mrs. Lizard. Wait a minute, there's no Mrs. Adam. What the heck? Good news, God saw the need before Adam did and before Adam ever complained. God said it's not good that Adam's alone. And God took care of the need, but it was work, in a sense, that revealed it. So work can reveal amazing things about yourself, giftings and things like that. You can see God work and provide, but also work can reveal a lot of sin. As Adam and Eve were tending the garden, that was when Satan showed up, tempted Eve to eat the fruit. And so again, work was the context of a massive rebellion. So is God using work to reveal sin? I love this story because you see how generous the people are. 
It's amazing that these people are giving. This is the first free will offering ever recorded. These people are just giving. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a form of worship in a sense. It's just, hey, we need raw material. Would you supply it? And the people supply so much that Moses has to say, hey, stop giving. That's kind of like a rare thing. I've never been to a church where the pastor's like, hey, you guys are too generous. We're going to like kill the tithe today. Like that usually doesn't happen because you at least want to, hey, there's always going to be a need. Let's create a surplus. Let's, cre- let's, let's hold this in savings. Moses is so confident in God's provision that he's like, you know, we've hit our quota. Stop giving. So you see this interesting trust between the people but this radical generosity. Work often doesn't reveal radical generosity. It reveals radical hoarding quite often, where we just want to build bigger barns to hold bigger paychecks, and we're not generous. So as I read this text, I'm convicted by the generosity of the people and the leadership. I'm convicted by the trust they have in God. So is your work situation revealing sin in your life? And what I love about these people, because I find generosity and relationship and obedience to God go hand in hand. Because way back in, I think it was Exodus chapter 12, these people were asked to do something really weird. Okay, picture this. You've been enslaved by these people generationally. Your master's over you over your grandparents, over your great-grandparents. And God told Moses to ask the people, to tell the people, say, hey, before you leave, before I deliver you with this 10th final plague, before I kill all the firstborn in the house, ask your owners for their gold. And if I was the if, if, if that came to, I'd be like, are you kidding me, Moses? You want me to ask my angry slave owner who's just lost their firstborn for gold? That sounds ridiculous. And not only that, that's so not practical. And we're going to the desert, and you want me to carry gold through the desert? That's dumb. I'm not going to do that. So often, God will call you to situations that do not make sense. And your temptation will be to listen to yourself, to listen to the cultural narrative, and to not listen to what the Word of God says. And if these people did that, guess what? They would not be able to be providing Moses with the necessary means to complete the tabernacle. You see, God sees the big picture, and he will call you to do things in your life that do not make sense sometimes, but that's okay. He's God, you're not. Just because you don't get it doesn't mean it's wrong. Last time I checked, you're the one who's not infinite. He's the one who is So if it is a hard season that doesn't make sense, I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, God is mysterious, and sometimes he will not make sense. But as I get older, sometimes he lets me see what he was up to, and I'm like, ah, that's why that didn't work out, or that's why that worked out, or or, that's why we went there, or that's why we didn't do that, or that's why I met that person. Most of the time, I don't see it, and it'll just click in heaven one day, I'm sure. But until then... God help us to obey him when things don't make sense. These people did it, and that's why they had gold, to even offer up to the sanctuary. Does that make sense? So their faith in God correlated to their generosity towards God. Final point. Remember the gospel. We always have to end on the gospel, amen? What I think is cool 
about Bezalel is this. He's in the tribe of Judah, and his name means in the shadow of God. Jesus was in the tribe of Judah, but if you read Hebrews, he's not the shadow of God. He is the very substance of God. In the scriptures, we see these people giving a free will offering, and it's something they have to do in verse 36.3, chapter 36.3, day after day, over and over again. The beauty of Jesus' free will offering is that he did it once for all. In 1 Peter, it says that Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Bezalel built the tabernacle, Jesus Christ fulfilled the tabernacle. All those chapters before this chapter, you read about these different pieces of the tabernacle that Bezalel and Oholiab end up making, and they're all pictures pointing to the bigger picture of Jesus. One of the things you'd see when you make this, so a tabernacle, it's like a portable temple in the desert. You could, you could set it up, break it down, move it along, but it was a place of worship, a place where God was going to encounter the Israelites. And so you'd have this courtyard, and you'd walk in, and the first thing you'd see was this altar. Now, the altar had four horns on it. And interestingly enough, anytime there was a king that was going to kill you and you knew it, you would run to the altar and hold onto the horns because it symbolized mercy because the altar was where animals were sacrificed. So many. It was like a peta nightmare people against the ethical, you know what I'm saying? Because it just didn't make sense if you didn't see it pointing to Jesus. But there needed to be sacrifice before you could even begin to enter in to worship with God. He was so holy, something had to be punished. Something had to kind of be dealt with. It was either you or that animal. So to approach this holy God, the animal had to be sacrificed, acknowledging that we're guilty and we deserve death. So for me to even start this process, this animal has to be killed. Well, the scriptures tell us that Jesus, John the Baptist, when he saw him, he said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was the one-time sacrifice we don't need an altar anymore because of what Christ did. We don't need animals to be sacrificed for us because of Christ. He died on our behalf. So he's bigger than the altar. Next, you'd see this thing called a laver. This is where the high priest would have to wash their hands and wash their feet, their feet over and over and over again. And it symbolized, again, this holiness of God, this need to be clean before a holy God. The beautiful thing about the gospel, it tells us that Jesus died for the purification of our sins in Hebrews 1.3. Jesus makes us holy. He makes us whiter than snow, it says in Isaiah. So we no longer have to do these ritualistic washings because Jesus makes us clean. You enter past the laver. There's a lampstand, this gigantic menorah. It had to be tended to 24-7. The lights could never burn out, practically showing the constant ministry of the high priest, never ending, tending to, but also this frustrating, futile religion. When Jesus said, I'm bigger than this. I am the light of the world. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the one pointing people to God. Jesus is the light of the world, bigger than the lampstand. And then next to that would be the showbread. 
The showbread was a loaf of bread that always had to be present, symbolizing the presence of God amongst the people. But it would get crusty. It would get moldy. It would need to be replaced. And again, ongoing requirement of of tending to, never-ending. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. He was bigger than the showbread. And then finally, you get to the mercy seat. And this is where you have these gigantic cherubim in, in, in American culture. You know, cherubim are like, they look cute, chubby, like Cupid kind of angels. In Jewish culture, they were frightening. They were scary. Lucifer was a cherubim. It was a cherubim that guarded paradise, that kept you out of the Garden of Eden. They were kind of foreboding scarier angels and it was two cherubim that were on top of the ark of the covenants touching wing to wing almost conveying this holiness and this inapproachability of god now inside that ark there was manna there was aaron's staff and there was the law and god would come down in this most holy place where the high priest could go once a year to make atonement for all the people And God would manifest himself between those cherubim. Jesus is bigger and better than the mercy seat. Because when Mary went to the tomb, she sees this empty tomb. She sees an angel at the head, this is in Luke, and an angel at the foot. And what it is is a picture of Jesus being bigger than that mercy seat. Inside that tomb, there was not a law of God that you couldn't keep. There was not a jar of manna that would never satisfy you. There was not a rod that could never lead you to God because God had been resurrected because he conquered death, conquered sin, and brought us to the presence of God. We didn't need a high priest. The temple curtain tore in two, symbolizing access to God and the Holy Spirit being unleashed on mankind now. So Jesus is bigger than the tabernacle. And so no matter what situation you find yourself in, good, bad, confusing, I want to encourage you. Not only are you chosen, not only are you spirit-filled, not only is God working in your life, but God died to save you. And in the big picture, if you can reflect on the fact that God gave up everything to make you his own, You can trust him for whatever season you find yourself in. If he thought you were worth dying for, then surely he's going to walk with you through all the highs and lows of life. He'll never leave you or forsake you. Let's pray. So God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for what we see in these men, uh, what we see in these people. Thank you for their generosity, God. Thank you for... uh, the tabernacle that they built. But thank you for the fact that all these things point to you and all these things find fulfillment in you. And as Mark leads us at your table, God, as we reflect on the body broken for us through the bread, as we reflect on your blood spilt for us through the wine, God, give us encouragement, God. Give us encouragement today that no matter what season we're in, you're with us, you're for us, and we're yours. Amen.